Well, welcome, depending upon where you are in the world. Good afternoon and welcome to the Enduring Word live question and answer for Thursday, May 6th. I apologize for us getting started just a few minutes late. I had a few technical difficulties. I guess I hadn't switched something to auto start on the live stream, but I think we are ready to go. As you know, if you've connected with the live broadcast for the last couple of weeks, Pastor David isn't here. I apologize for that. Today, Pastor David is in Washington, D.C. I believe that he is at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. today. And of course, it's a perfect day to be in Washington, D.C. because you may or may not know that today, the first Thursday in May, is the National Day of Prayer. It's also Nurses Day, which my wife is a nurse, so I think that's a great day. So, um, Pastor David put a call out to Pastor Lance Ralston a couple of weeks ago and to Pastor Chuck Musselwhite last week and to me to fill in for him. I'm Miles DeBenedictus. I'm the pastor of Cross Connection Church in um, North San Diego County, California. And, <clears throat> pardon me, and I, I live in a town called Escondido. I also have the privilege of serving with the Enduring Word uh, board uh, Enduring Word as a board member, which is just a huge privilege for me. It's a blessing to see what God is doing in and through the ministry of Enduring Word. Every day, tens of thousands of people use Pastor David's resources on the website and also through our mobile apps. And throughout the world, people are logging on constantly. And it has been great to see how this broadcast, specifically on David's YouTube channel, has been reaching many people and growing over the last couple of years. This was something that we had a board gathering several years ago, and myself and the other uh, board members, we encouraged David to do something on YouTube, and it's been really cool to see what has taken off from this. So thank you for being a part of what God is doing through Enduring Word, and thank you for sending in your questions for our broadcasts as we do these. And remember today, if you do have a question, please make sure that you put it in the chat window, probably on the right if you're watching this on a computer or down below if you're watching this on a phone or a tablet. And Devin, our moderator, will send those questions to me throughout the time that we have today. So speaking of questions today, I noticed as I was watching the chat a couple of weeks ago as Pastor Lance was doing the broadcast, and then again last week when Pastor Chuck was doing the show, that there was a question that came up both times. And Pastor Chuck hit on it briefly, but I wanted to circle back to it this week and talk a little bit more in depth about it because it seems like an important topic. And I say that it seems like an important topic because I've had several people within my own church ask me some questions on this topic recently. So uh, for some reason, this seems to be on people's minds. And the questions have to do with the topic of baptism. Specifically, the question that came up on the broadcast last week and the week before had to do with the issue of self-baptism, which may sound a little odd to some of you because it isn't really something that comes up all that often, but there are some interesting things to think about as it relates to self-baptism. If you think about it, at some point, it would seem that someone would have had to take the plunge and baptize themselves back at the very beginning if they were going to begin to baptize others. So how did that happen? How does that even work? And is it doctrinally okay? Is it permissible? And that really is a, a good question, and it brings up 
an important topic for Christians like myself and probably a lot of Christians that engage with this channel and with Enduring Words content. Baptism is very important. Protestant, evangelical, Baptist-type Christians, as in those that hold to believer's baptism or what is sometimes called credo-baptism, they have two major sacraments. Um, that is, they have two sacred religious rituals or rites that they observe. We observe communion, the Lord's Supper, when we partake of the bread and the cup, and then we partake in, in baptism as well. And we do so because Jesus in the Gospels explicitly told us to do so. So what is baptism? Where did it come from? Why do we do it? And is it okay to baptize yourself? So let me begin with that first part of the question, what is baptism? As I said a moment ago, baptism is what we might call a ritual purification. And among the Jews, and all of the first Christians were Jewish, they had ritual purifications. One of them somewhat looked like what you might think of when you think of baptism by immersion in our day. There is a Jewish ritual of immersion in water in a small pool called a mikvah. And we have archaeological evidence at many sites in Israel of ancient mikvah or mikvot. And there are a number of rabbinical regulations for how these mikvot were to be constructed and then how they were to be used as well. But it isn't for physical watch washing. This isn't to make yourself clean, but ritual purification by immersion in water. And we also see in the Old Testament, the book of 2 Kings, in 2 Kings chapter 5, there's the story of Naaman the Syrian. And the Syrians were enemies of the children of Israel, but Naaman was, well, he was even a commander in the army of Syria, so definitely an enemy of Israel. And he came down with leprosy. And he was told by someone within the court of the king, it seems, that he should go and he could go to the prophet Elisha in Israel and he could get help for this. So he goes and he sees Elisha and Elisha tells him through a servant, he doesn't even speak to him directly. He tells him that he's to go and immerse himself in the water of the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman's really bothered by this. It upsets him. And why should I go wash myself in this dirty river? I've got better rivers in Syria. But one of his servants says, well, why don't, why don't you just try it? And so he goes and he does, and he experiences healing from leprosy after he immersed himself in the Jordan River seven times, according to the direction of the prophet Elisha. Now, that really isn't baptism necessarily, but it may be one of the root connections along with the mikvah of this baptism and how it ultimately arose. But I cite them to describe what baptism looks like or is. It's not a physical washing, but a ritual immersion in water. There are also a number of allusions to baptism or types of baptism in the Old Testament. Paul writes about them in 1 Corinthians. Let me see if I can bring this passage of scripture up. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he talks about it. He says there, and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. And they were, they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 
So we have this picture there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 of a baptism sort of event and how this is a type or an allusion to baptism during the time of Moses, that the children of Israel, when they went under the Red Sea and as they remained under the cloud in the wilderness, remember the cloud covered them by day and the pillar of fire directed them by night. This being under the cloud was in the mind of the Apostle Paul, kind of a picture of baptism, a type of it. But where did it come from for the Christian? I'm sure many people who follow the scriptures and and read through the Bible, they would figure that it came from or had some sort of a connection to the most well-known Baptist in scripture, John the Baptist. And you'd be right if you thought that. But I want to suggest to you that the baptism of John, John the Baptist, it was different in that the baptism of John the Baptist had a very specific and different purpose than the baptism that we partake of as a ritual purification. I want to suggest to you that according to the scripture, the baptism performed by John the Baptist, it had to do with, um, it, it was a pattern for baptisms that followed it, but it was employed by John for the purpose, not of any sort of um, purification or sanctification, but for revelation. It was less a baptism of consecration um, than or identification or association, which I'll talk about more in a moment. And it was for the purpose of revealing something. And that's exactly what John explains when he describes his purpose in baptizing in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We read this, try and put it up on the screen here, in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29. On the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This great proclamation about the Lamb of God. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Then Notice this in verse 31. This is really important because John is telling us something about the baptism that he is performing. He says, I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. So John is telling us here in this passage that his purpose in his baptism was for the purpose of revelation. He says it again in verse 32. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him. Here's the key thing, verse 33. But he who sent me to you, he who sent me to baptize, so God is the one who sent John the Baptist to baptize. He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, it is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So this is very important. It clearly explains to us why John was baptizing after the pattern he was. And the entire time he was baptizing, I kind of wonder, or I even imagine, that he may have been watching very closely to see the sign that he was told that he would identify the Christ with. So God the Father told John, you're going to go baptize people, immerse them in water in the Jordan River, And upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, that is the Christ. And so he's looking for that every time he is baptizing. And when he saw that, then he proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And almost as soon as John identified Jesus as the Christ, and he points to Jesus and says, He's the one you're to follow, his baptism work effectively fades away. 
And he even says, as it's recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 3, he, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. So the baptism of John was for the purpose of revelation. And baptism, as we think of it, it's different than the purpose of John's baptism, uh, even though it may be very similar in form. So we know that John did it, did this baptism. Uh, We know what it was that he did. We know why he baptized, but why do we baptize? I believe and have taught for years at my own church that we baptize for three reasons. We baptize first for obedience, second for identification, and third for association. So let me explain what I mean by that. First, obedience. Obedience because Jesus commissioned his disciples to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, right at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, and so I'm sending you. You go, make disciples, and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we baptize in obedience to Christ's command, and Peter also commanded the first converts in Acts chapter 2 to repent. I believe it's about verse 38. He says, repent every one of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. So We baptize in obedience to Christ's commission and to his command. But we also baptize in identification with Jesus. Just as Jesus was baptized, we are baptized with him. We read at the open of the gospel ministry of Jesus that he went to John to be baptized. And that's where we have that picture of the spirit descending upon him and remaining upon him like a dove and the father saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased And so Jesus is baptized, and we follow him in baptism to identify ourselves with him as his followers. And then the third reason that we baptize is in association with his death, burial, and resurrection. Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 6. He's talking about this very thing in verse 3. He says, Do you not know that as many of you of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also walk in newness of life. So we are associating with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection when we go down into the waters of baptism. And so we have those those three things that we do this for. We are obeying the Lord in baptism as he commissioned his disciples to go and make disciples baptizing them and Peter commanded the first converts to be baptized. We are identifying with Jesus just as he was baptized, we identify ourselves with him as being baptized and then we associate with his death, burial and resurrection. But the question always comes, when should a person be baptized? And Can they or should they baptize themselves? Now, I believe that the answer to the first question is found in Acts chapter 8, when Philip shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch, who, upon hearing the gospel, the Ethiopian asks Philip, what prevents me from being baptized? What is keeping me from being a part of the church and baptized into the church? And Philip says to him, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And that's the answer. When you are a believer, you should obey the Lord's command to identify with him and associate with him in baptism. 
And the Ethiopian eunuch there, he responded, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, which is the question that we at the church that I pastor, Cross Connection Church, that's what we ask people when we are preparing to baptize them. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And that's the foundational confession of the church. As Jesus says to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, when when he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, you know, upon this rock, I will build my church. So that's the foundational confession of the Christian. Now, all of that to get to this, can you baptize yourself? That was the original question that I saw a couple of weeks ago, and then it came up in the chat again last week. Can you self-baptize? Ideally, it is my conviction that Christians should be baptized into the body of Christ, the church, by a member of a local church, the local church eldership or leadership, or at least baptized by another baptized believer. Self-baptism shouldn't be necessary, but it's also not explicitly forbidden in the scriptures. And the earliest Baptists, when you think about those who were following a form of credo-baptism or believer's baptism, the earliest Baptist, a man named John Smith, because there were not really any Baptists like him around before him. The earliest Baptist, John Smith, baptized himself in the Netherlands in 1609. And then he created the first Baptist church, the group of you know, Protestants, those who were protesting, who had escaped England and persecution in England and gone to the Netherlands. And ultimately, that same group came to the, the Americas and you know, started the first Baptist communities. And he baptized himself though he really wrestled with this decision to baptize himself, and later he had real issues with having done it, but he did baptize himself. So baptism is self-baptism is not forbidden. Um, it has been done before, but I don't think that it's ideal. So that's kind of the, the key question starting with today. Um, hopefully we have some other questions that have come in today. Let me again say that I'm Pastor Miles Benedictus. I'm the pastor of Cross Connection Church, and I have the privilege of serving with Pastor David on the board of Enduring Word with Lance Ralston, who led the discussion a couple weeks ago, and Pastor Chuck Musselwhite, who led the discussion last week. So let me see what Devin has sent in as some other questions here. This one is from TGN Daily. Can you clearly explain what Jesus means to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, making disciples like in Matthew 28, and how it applies to believers today? Great question. Uh, absolutely. I, I, you know, when you start to talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, those who are Christians believe that there is one God, but that God is a triune being, that he exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when we baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus commissioned us to do in Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, I believe what we're doing there is we are baptizing people into the body of God, the body of Christ as a whole, and that we are recognizing that God is the fullness of all things, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, there are those who are very committed to the idea of baptizing in Jesus' name only, make a really big deal about that, and they have a whole bunch of reasons as to why they do that. But ultimately, we're going off of what we see from Jesus in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So, so that's why we do this baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, we don't follow that view of, of uh, Jesus-only baptism. 
<clears throat> Next question, Don McCord. If a person accepts Jesus Christ and wants to be baptized, but doesn't want to become a part of a local congregation, a, a congregation, the Baptists that baptizes him because of whatever reason, is it still okay to baptize him? Well, I think it's very important that the when we are baptized, we are baptized into the body of Christ. And I do not believe that it is beneficial to a Christian to be a Christian independent of a local body within the church. Ideally, we should be a part of a local body of believers and function within that body. Because um, at our church, we talk about this quite a bit. In fact, I'm doing a series of teachings on this right now at our church. Our vision at Cross Connection Church is life in connection with God, one another, and the world through Jesus. And God created us to live in connection with him and then to be connected with others, that horizontal relationship, within the body of the church. And Paul talks a lot about this in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at about verse 14. You can actually back up to, even back to verse 8, for by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves. And then we are the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus for good works, verse 10. And then it goes into verse 11, where it immediately starts to talk about how we have been united together in Christ, reconciled to God and to one another. And that takes place within the church. And so we're baptized into the body of Christ, which is the church, And that's the greatest expression of the body of Christ here on the earth. And we should ideally be a part of a gathering, a community of Christians. So I think it's very important to be baptized and be a part of a local church, committed to the work of the local church. Now, for one reason or another, there are all kinds of people who kind of have this view that I don't need the church. Maybe they were a part of a church and they got upset at that church or they had some problems and some conflicts with people in the church understand, I think it's actually important for our growth and our sanctification to bump up against other sinners within the body of Christ, within the church, and learn how to receive the forgiveness of God and extend the forgiveness of God to other people. So this whole concept of, you know, I got upset, I got hurt by a group of people and, you know, somebody at a church, so I'm not going to be a part of that church and I can live apart from Jesus and be baptized and do communion on my own. Communion by yourself doesn't make any sense. We're, we're communing with God and with one another, and we should be a part of a local church serving within that context and growing. And some of that growing is where we learn how to forgive and we learn how to function in the fruit of the spirit and be self-controlled and kind. And sometimes there are unkind people within the body of Christ. And hopefully as we pray for them and teach them the scriptures, we all grow more into Christ-likeness in those ways. Pardon me, got a little bit of a cold that I'm battling. All right, next question. Joyce Wilson asks, will Jesus bear the marks of his crucifixion all through eternity? This is a really good question. I, uh, I had to drop my car off today to have some work done on it. And so I had called my mom and asked her if she would pick me up and drive me home. My wife wasn't at home. <clears throat> and so my mom had my, my nine-year-old daughter, Evangeline, in the car. And while we were driving home, this is just today, Joyce, this is perfect. Uh, as we were driving home, my mom had the radio on and there was a Bible teacher on the radio teaching. And he was talking about this exact thing of Jesus bearing those scars. And Evangeline started asking us some questions about it. It'd be kind of weird that you could put your hand inside or through Jesus's hand. And uh, she really had a hard time understanding this sort of thing. What we have is that 
it appears from the scriptures that the scars of what Jesus endured remain. And we have a beautiful picture of this in that heavenly scene that John sees in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter four and five. And then again, it continues on in chapter seven, where we see all of these people gathered around the throne in heaven from every tribe and tongue and nation, which implies that Jesus's commission in Matthew 28 to go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, that will be fulfilled when we are in glory with the Lord. We will see that the gospel has gone to all people. People have been baptized throughout the entire world. And so we see when Jesus is revealed, I believe it's in Revelation chapter 5, he is the, the lamb that was slain. And we see him, John sees him as a lamb who was slain. And so there's a certain aspect of Jesus's appearance where he retains these scars. We know that that after his resurrection and his post-resurrection visit with Thomas, he says, you know, behold my hands and my feet and put your hand on my side. So apparently, even in his resurrected form, those wounds were still evident and still for us to be able to see. And he bears in his body the marks of the crucifixion and will for eternity. And those really are a statement to us of his love. God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we we see in him that he retains those marks in his body. (coughs) Thanks for that question, Joyce. That's a great question. Uh, And Andrea Kolsch, I like the Nutella glass in the back. Yeah, I I have actually several of those. Um, Nutella is a favorite in our household. And I, I met Andrea when I lived in Germany. I taught with Pastor David at Calvary Chapel Bible School in Siegen, Germany back in 2004 and 2005. And when I was there, they had a promotion because I believe at that point it was like the 40 year anniversary. So I have this giant Nutella jar and I brought that home for my family at Christmas. And I'm pretty sure my family ate the entire thing of uh, Nutella in one day. It was incredible. I would eat that stuff by the spoonful, but I'm not allowed to because it will probably kill me. So another question from Sunset Auto. Is it true that to take communion, we must be baptized first? Not necessarily that you must be baptized first. And that is a great question. Um, I would say this, though, that... Within the Protestant, you know, Bible teaching evangelical church, as I said previously, we hold primarily to two sacraments, two sacred rituals that we observe, uh, one of them being communion and the other being baptism. And it would seem that these are very important. Jesus told, told us that we should baptize and we should obey him in this. And he said to his disciples, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we should do it regularly. And um, that's an important aspect of what we do as followers of Jesus. Do you have to be baptized before you partake of communion? I don't know of any passage of scripture that says that you should, but I do teach at my own church that we see baptism as a first order of obedience when you begin to walk with the Lord. So when someone receives Christ and puts their trust in him for salvation, we encourage them that one of your first steps of obedience should be to obey the Lord in baptism. And then we also partake of communion. Now, I will say within my own church, um, we partake of communion more frequently or more often than we do perform baptisms. And um, this may be something we need to change or rectify. I know I see with a number of churches where they are holding baptisms more frequently, um, but um, it is an important part of the work that we do within the church. So to be baptized and partake of 
communion. Next question comes from Shai Lu. Can and should you be baptized twice? This is a really good question, uh, having to do with rebaptism. If you had a period of time falling away from your faith, there's actually a, quite a discussion about this right now um, within what we would say Baptist churches. And I know a lot of people, they don't go to a Southern Baptist church or a General Baptist church, but they might go to another evangelical church, an EV free church, or they go to a Calvary Chapel church, like many who might be watching this. And so you're not explicitly a part of a Baptist denomination, but you're still a Baptist in the sense of you believe in believer's baptism or credo baptism. And so you believe that you're baptized as a first order of obedience and as identification with Jesus, association with him after you are a believer. And there are many people who, when they come to faith, maybe after a period of time of walking away, maybe they were a believer or a follower or a member of a church when they were in youth group in high school, then they went away to college and they walked away. This actually happens far too much. And then they return back to the church and maybe they were baptized when they were 13 or 17 years old in youth group at a youth camp. And now they're putting their faith in Christ and they're asking the question about rebaptism. There is a question and there's been a discussion going about in Baptist circles, more denominational Baptist circles, where they don't like this. And they, I see this comes up sometimes on social media. They get upset because they see pictures of people baptizing little children who are, you know, six, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. And they go, oh, you got to stop doing that because you're just setting them up for future problems and having to, you know, they walk away from the Lord and they weren't really Christians. And then they come back and rebaptism. So there's some people that make a big deal about rebaptism. Um, I'm not one of those people. I think if someone, um, maybe they, they were baptized within a Lutheran church or within a Catholic church, some Presbyterian church where they were baptized in an, as an infant, they had no real stake in the game, if you will. They had no idea what they were doing when they were an infant. And maybe later they're being baptized or they were baptized as a young child or a young adult, and now they're coming back to the Lord. I don't necessarily have an issue with a rebaptism, though I'm, I don't believe from the scriptures that it's something that is necessary or essential. Uh, we do not teach, at least within my church, and I know David doesn't eat as well, that you must be baptized to be saved. And most often when people talk about that, they go back to the thief on the cross. But I would go back to the fact that um, baptizing people wasn't the highest focus of ministry for people like the Apostle Paul. If baptism was essential for Christian salvation, then you would expect that Paul would put a bigger emphasis upon it, and he would not have said, as he does, I believe, in his letters to the Corinthians, I, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you, except for the house of Stephanus, I believe, is what he says. And so if baptism was an essential part of the faith, Paul would not have said, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. Um, so it wasn't uh, a necessity or an essential area. So can someone be rebaptized after they were baptized at a younger point in time? Yes, I do think they can. But I would also add to that, I don't think you need to go through this pattern of every time there's a baptism and maybe you screwed up in the last six months and you feel like you need to be rebaptized again. It's kind of an aspect of immaturity, like the person who feels the need to uh, raise their hand and walk down to the front at every single altar call. And um, I just don't see that as a necessity. Next question is from James Benjamin. And I just want to say thank you to Devin Berryhill. Thank you for what you're doing and moderating this. It makes it a whole lot easier to be able to answer the questions in this format. So from James Benjamin via mail, someone sent this in the, the old way. That's awesome. Who are these my people 
mentioned in Revelation 18, 4. Is the church of God still on earth at that time? So let me see if I can bring up on the screen Revelation chapter 18. We'll say 18. Let's do verse 1 through 7 or so. So we get some context here. If my technology is working. There we go. Revelation 18.1, after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and cage for every unclean, hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. <clears throat> and I heard another voice from heaven saying, this is the verse here, verse 4, saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities, Babylon's iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works, and the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. So the verse we're looking at here is verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. Obviously, when we get to discussions of the book of Revelation, we're dealing with things that um, are a lot of speculation. There are many different views on the book of Revelation. Is this something that already is fulfilled? Um, those who hold to a preterist view, um, they, they hold that these things, uh, the book of Revelation was written at an early date, and these things are talking about what happened under Nero and with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Other people who hold a more futurist view, that would be the view that I hold, and Pastor Lance and Chuck and David as well, we believe that Revelation was written much later, probably in the 90s AD, and that during that period of time, they were looking forward to something that would happen in the future. So there are different ways of interpreting the book of Revelation. And for those who hold a futurist view, and those who hold not just a futurist view, but they hold to a pre-tribulational view, they hold to the view that the church is removed out of the earth before a period of tribulation, and that Revelation chapter 6 through 19 are speaking of that revelation period. Now, there are many Christians who believe that these things are yet future that don't hold that specific view. So they would answer this in a different way. And they would say that, yes, there are Christians here upon the earth during the tribulation. And I think you can make some great arguments for that. There are other people who say, no, Christians will not be upon the earth, not in mass. The church will be removed before the tribulation. So they would say, no, there are no Christians. But most of those, I believe that you would read, who hold to that pre-tribulation view they believe that there is still evangelism going on during the period of the tribulation and that there will be people that are sometimes referred to as tribulation saints. These will both be Jewish people because it seems in the book of Revelation and other apocalyptic and prophetic passages, I think of the book of Zechariah, that there are people who are saved out of the tribes of Israel during the period of, of tribulation and that there are other people who are non-Jewish who are saved during that period. So it would seem that there is some allusion to that probably in that passage in Revelation chapter 18. See what else we have here. Devin Simpson. Well, th this goes in line in entirely with what I just was saying. What is the study of eschatology? The study of eschatology, the word eschatos speaks of the end. So it's the study of the last things or the study of the end. 
And so when you start to talk about predictive prophecy that is yet fulfilled, yet to be fulfilled, and there are lots of speculations, ideas, opinions on this sort of stuff, and so we recognize that there are different ways that people interpret these things, but eschatology is the study of the last things surrounding the second coming of Jesus. We believe that Jesus will return one day, and I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to him coming and making all things new. That will be a wonderful day when that comes to pass. So we look forward to that. And Christians who study and teach the end times and the second coming of Christ, they're talking about eschatology. We have to be very careful in the study of eschatology. We have to be, approach it with humility and work to be interpreters of the Bible and not like cryptographers of Bible codes and, you know, kind of strange things in the scriptures. We should come to the Bible for our understanding of the last things and not become YouTube eschatologers or, as it once was said decades ago, uh, newspaper eschatology was a thing. Now I think it's YouTube eschatology where you find just um, every sort of strange idea and conspiracy theory that ever could be uh, would be found there on the Internet. So we have to be careful about that when we come to those things. Francis Agbana Francis Ogbana says, how often should we partake in communion in our own outside or of on our own or outside of the local church we attend every Sunday? Really good question. Uh, obviously, local churches do things different ways. The church that I pastor, we partake of communion every seventh Sunday. We begin the new year by partaking of communion on the first Sunday of the year, and then we count every seven Sundays after that, and we partake of communion. <clears throat> if you go back throughout church history, You'll find that there were times where, within church history where the church partook once a year. Or you find within the Catholic Mass that they partake every single week. And there are a number of Protestant churches that partake of communion every week as well. Then within some churches, they say that you should only take communion as administered by the clergy. And then there are other churches that say you can partake of communion on your own whenever you'd like to. And you don't need a member of the clergy to lead you. So there are very high views of communion that you need to partake as directed by the clergy every single week. And there are, I, I hate to say it this way, but this would be the way to say it, lower views of communion that you could partake of it anytime that you want to. It seems to me when I read the book of Acts chapter 2 and I read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where we read about communion, it seems like the early church partook more often and that they partook when they were gathered at homes. Now, of course, they didn't have church buildings and church services in the same way that we did, so they would gather for church in homes. And when they did, they would partake of communion in this love feast that they would partake of. So as a time when they would be gathered together to have a meal, which might look very much like your traditional Southern Baptist um, uh, potluck, at a certain point they might partake of communion and say, hey, we want to remember why we are gathered together as a people and we're gathered together as a people because of what Christ has done in his body that was broken for us, the bread and the cup that was his blood that was shed for us through the cup. So Elisa, Elisa Stuart, Stuart said, or Swart says, on the mountain of transfiguration, that would be Matthew chapter 17, where Moses also appeared, how can we explain his appearance? And what body was he since it cannot be his resurrected body? It's a great question. Um, I'm not sure that we have a perfect answer for that in the scriptures. We're, we're told that Moses and Elijah were there, and obviously Peter, James, and John, who were there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, they were able to recognize somehow what Moses and Elijah 
looked like. They didn't have photographs of Moses and Elijah, just like we don't have photographs of Moses and Elijah. But something about Moses revealed that he was Moses, and something about Elijah revealed that he was Elijah. And they appeared. Now, they are... My, my expectation of this would be that what Peter, James, and John are seeing is they're seeing beyond the veil, if you will. They're seeing into another realm, into the spirit realm, where Moses and Elijah are residing at that point in time. And so they are seeing them in Christ, if you will. They're seeing them uh, not of this world. So what body did they have? And you know, where the scriptures are silent, I would probably try to maintain some some humility and some silence on that as well. Uh, just a couple more questions coming up here before I answer those couple of questions. Let me briefly just say once again that I'm Miles DeBenedictus. I'm the pastor of Cross Connection Church in North San Diego County in Escondido. And um, I would invite you to check out uh, the church that I pastor. You can find that just at lifeinconnection.com. Or uh, you can also find out more information about the work that I do both with Enduring Word and Blue Letter Bible and some of those other things at my website, pastormiles.com. And I also do a YouTube broadcast. I put out four or five devotional style videos called Coffee Time every single week. And I hope you'll take a look at those. You find those just at, if you go to pastormiles.com slash YT for YouTube, um, then you can find all of that information and, and see some of the videos that I've been putting out there. And uh, let me look at a couple more questions here. Anita Miller says, also via mail, I need to know a clearer picture of Calvinism. I have my own thoughts on this, but struggle with people who are pushing this doctrine to the point of causing church splits. Well, Anita, I would say that is my biggest concern as it relates to issues of Calvinism as well. Um, I am not a Calvinist. Um, I, I am a reformed Christian in the sense that I'm a Protestant Christian, which is a product of the Reformation that took place, you know, four or 500 years ago. And so we recognize that we are reformed Christians, but maybe not Calvinists. So I don't hold to what is commonly referred to as the doctrines of grace and don't hold to the tulip view of soteriology or the study of salvation, the tulip view, total depravity, um, unlimited uh, election, limited atonement and so forth. I don't hold to that tulip view. And my, my, I won't say my biggest concern, but up near the top of my concerns of what I have observed within a lot of Calvinist circles. And this is in no way just paint. I don't want to paint with too broad a brush because I have some very good friends who hold to the doctrines of grace and are more reformed in their way of approaching salvation. And they're God-loving Christians. I love them. They're wonderful people. Uh, I don't agree with them on a number of points of doctrine. But my, my concern, as I observe and understand, I live 15 minutes away from one of the most well-known reformed seminaries in America, um, right here in the town that I live in, Escondido. And uh, some of the greatest minds in Calvinism are a part of that seminary, Westminster Theological Seminary in Escondido. So one of the things I have observed that I see as a, a deficit or a problem within a lot of Calvinist circles is that they proselytize the saved over evangelize the lost. And a lot of times they do this through sowing seeds of doubt in people's theological positions. And, well, you just don't know the fullness of what the scriptures say, and you don't understand these things. And then they get into the, the, you know, a heavy sovereignty of God position. God is sovereign over all things. Of course, I believe in the sovereignty of God, but not to the extent that those from sort of a John Piper or R.C. Sprawl sort of view would view the, the sovereignty of God. 
and they, they have a high view of the sovereignty of God and a very low view of responsibility of man. Myself and many of those that I work with in the ministry, we try very hard to maintain a balance, recognizing that the sovereignty of God is taught in the scriptures. So I've told people in my church, if you come to my church and I'm reading, I'm studying and teaching through Romans chapters 8 through 11, you're probably going to think I'm a Calvinist. But if you come to my church and I'm preaching through Hebrews chapter 6 or Hebrews chapter 10, you're going to think that I am not a Calvinist. And um, that's because we try to recognize that the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are taught in the scriptures and oftentimes joined together as one. For example, my favorite passage in the entire Bible is in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, where Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, your responsibility. For it is God that works in you, God who works in you to will and to do, desire and to do his good pleasure, God's sovereignty. So these things go together. And anytime I see people dividing the body of Christ, I have real concerns with what they are doing. Final question as we wrap it up today. Grant Thompson, why did godly men have two wives in the Old Testament? Elkanah and 1 Samuel 1 being one of the people. Well, obviously, when we look at the Old Testament, there was not an explicit command against that at that time. But it's not God's ideal. And I would say that it was not God's ideal from the beginning. And in the same way that Jesus says in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 18, I believe it is, having to do with divorce, when he says to the people that were asking him about, you know, husbands and wives and divorce and, and marriage, when he is asked about that, he says, in the beginning, it wasn't this way. But because of your flesh, Moses gave the certificate of divorce. And I would say in the beginning, it was not so that people would be married to more than one, you know, spouse. And that was not the way. Now, the reason that it happened is because of your flesh and it was permitted because of your flesh. But God's ideal is found all the way back at the very beginning when in the image of God, he made us male and female. He created us. And he says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it's not good that man should be alone, and I will make a helper comparable. And so the two shall become one flesh, not the man and one, or, or I'm sorry, uh, two or three or four or five brides. No, it's the two shall become one flesh. So God's ideal from the beginning was one man, one woman joined together as one for life under God. And so um, though there were godly individuals in the Old Testament, and I think beyond Elkanah, the most well-known would be um, Jacob. Jacob had two wives and two concubines. And from that, we have the, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. So it was permitted, but not because of the way that God had made it from the beginning. So um, I hope that answers your question, Grant. This has been a real blessing to be able to lead this today. So I just want to express my thanks to Pastor David Guzik and uh, to all of you who joined on and sent in your questions. We really appreciate that. Again, um, we'll see you next week. And remember that today is the National Day of Prayer. So I would ask you as I'm closing out our time today to maybe take a few minutes when we're done and to pray for our nation. I'm sure you can see that we are living in challenging times. And there is a, a root of tribalism and bitterness in our nation that is not good. But I want to suggest to you that it creates a great opportunity for we who believe in Christ, because Jesus is the one who has broken down the middle wall of partition, and he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. 
And what the United States of America needs right now is the ministry of the reconciliation by the gospel, not a political reconciliation, not even a racial reconciliation, though that happens when we are brought to God in Christ Jesus within the church by the gospel. And so I would encourage you to pray for that. And even as we're wrapping up here, let me just finish by praying specifically for that, that God would bring about a greater reconciliation through the gospel in our nation on this National Day of Prayer, May 6th. Father God, I thank you for those that have logged on to follow us today. I I thank you that I was able to sort out the problems that we had at the beginning, technology, always learning new things with technology. And I pray, God, that you would do a work through your church. Help us to shine brightly. And as there is even a lot of division within the church, I pray, God, that you would use your church to walk in the Spirit, And as we walk in the spirit, that we would function as ministers of the reconciliation, just as you have called us. We thank you that you, God, were in Christ reconciling the world to yourself. You have reconnected us to you. You've connected us to one another. And I pray that you'd help us to extend that to the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, thank you. And we'll see you next Thursday right here for another question and answer. And Pastor David will be back then. God bless. Have a great day.